Happy Tuesday. Thanks for listening in. If you were trying to connect with Lori Marini from last week's episode, you can find her at lorimarini.com. L-O-R-I-M-A-R-I-N-I.com. My guest on this week's episode is Jennifer Kim. She is the co-founder of the Young Women's Breast Cancer Awareness Foundation and is the development director at Cancer Caring Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jennifer was diagnosed in 2000 at the age of 36 with stage B triple positive ductal carcinoma. Jennifer talked about her diagnosis and treatments, as well as the importance of awareness, education, lifelong monitoring, and social emotional support. Take a listen in as Jennifer shares her story. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with me, Jennifer. I'm super excited to have you with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the beginning of your story. So, you know, you were diagnosed um, 20 years ago, but you were 36 at the time. And, you know, at that point in time, the, you know, the guidelines, first of all, they're always shifting, but I'm sure at 36, it was not to have a baseline mammogram. So what was the process um, for you? Like, how did you, how did you kind of find out that you had breast cancer? What was going on? Well, I, I felt a lump, um, much like many young women. Um, so I, I, there was a lump and it was sort of uh, far enough towards my underarm that I, I thought it just might've been a lymph node. And, um, and ultimately it was, it ended up being three tumors, but, and I could feel two of them, but I, you know, at 36 and with no family history, I really didn't take it seriously at first. And I thought, well, I'm just going to wait and see, you know, just to see if it, if it is a lymph node or if it's something that is just, you know, a temporary thing, because I, my baby was 15 months old. I had a three-year-old and a five-year-old. So, you know, I had been breastfeeding and there were just a lot of, you know, constant changes to my breasts over the, that five-year period. Sure. So it wasn't unusual to, you know, to, to have, some anomaly there, but, um, so did you, were you doing a breast exam or were you like kind of washing or just, you know, randomly touched it? Yeah, no, I was in the shower. I, okay. I was washing. Okay. And the, um, so ultimately I, I, you know, it stayed there for two weeks. So I did decide to make an appointment. I went to see the gynecologist and, um, and thank God, you know, he, he looked at it and he said, you know, it's, it's probably a cyst. He said, um, and he almost like closed the appointment saying it was a cyst. Don't worry about it. But, you know, he did a second take and he said, you know what, why don't I just send you for a mammogram? And he did, um, explain what the process was like that. I might be, be you know, be called back for a second shot, second, you know, um, views or that they might want to do a sonogram because it is, you know, you could feel it and don't worry about it. That's just normal. And so when I went for the mammogram, um, that happened, you know, they kept calling me back for more views and then they did a sonogram and then they said, um, we want to do a needle biopsy. So, you know, I was there for five hours because they did it all at once. And, um, you know, I, I really, I don't know 
if it was just being naive or what, but I, you know, I hadn't had much knowledge of younger women getting breast cancer. So we, that was on a Tuesday and on a Thursday we were scheduled to fly to my in-laws in Rhode Island. And my husband said, you know, well, we're not going. And I said, why not? (laughs) And he said, what, he said, well, what, you know, what if you have cancer? And I'm like, well, it's, you know, because it was Labor Day weekend. And I said, well, well, I mean, I'm not going to be able to see anybody anyway. I was very foolish. So I, we actually went. And so they called me when I was on the beach. Like I had a, I had a cell phone and um, she called and she said, I, you know, I just wanted to let you know it's carcinoma and, um, you know, uh, you know, you'll, you'll need to contact a breast surgeon, blah, blah, blah. And so um, I I was shocked because I, I clear, you know, clearly going away, I really felt like it was not, I I would never, I I really thought I was never going to get cancer, you know? So it was, it was shocking. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, exactly what you said is so many, I, you know, 20 years later, I think it's a little bit better, but you know, even 13 years ago, I didn't know that young women could get breast cancer. I don't know why. I would think exactly. that, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a conversation that was happening, you know, and I'd, I'd been going to the gynecologist for, I mean, I don't know. I think I started when I was like 14, 15 or 16, somewhere around there, you know, when, when I started having my period, but it, like there was nothing that was like, there were no conversations about, well, there are young women who are diagnosed with breast cancer. So, you know, I, I don't know if it's naive or if it's uninformed. Right. And that's sort of what led me to the mission of, of starting the Young Women's Breast Cancer Awareness Foundation because and initially it was awareness. Like I wanted, to, you know, because there were physicians. I mean, I, when I was getting chemo, there were women in chairs next to me who had been turned away for, for months because they said, you know, you're too young. You're too young. It's not, don't worry about it. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. And similar to me, they were in and out of breastfeeding or, you know, having challenges where, you know, and, and your breasts are constantly changing. So it is a, it's hard to know. And even doing like, I had very cystic breasts. So even doing a self breast exam kind of freaked me out because I was like, is this cancer? Is that normal? Is that, I, you know, I never, I really had a hard time. But the fact that um, some doctors were turning away these, you know, it's one thing for the patients to not really realize they're at risk, which, you know, I aimed to change. But for the physicians, that was the shocking part to me. Yeah, and and, um, I agree with that. I mean, I think it's, um, I, I had that same experience where, you know, I went in and I, just, I remember the doctor telling me, like, this isn't breast cancer you know, and your, your paternal grandmother is too distant. You're, you don't get breast cancer from the paternal side of your family. Um, yes. Yeah. That's a huge yeah. Myth. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So he was very convinced, but he said, I'm going to send you for some diagnostic tests um, anyways. And he, like he called and he apologized and he said, I was wow. wrong. And I said, you were. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. So on your part, you know, I don't, I don't know that it was necessarily naive, um, probably just not informed properly. So, um, so, I mean, you're on, on vacation, you're on the beach, this is totally unexpected for you. Um, you know, what did, what do you remember what went through your head or what you did or? Well, I mean, I, I really, um, 
just was kind of numb at the beginning and, and really then just tried to, to assemble, like trying to find the best people that I could to, to medically, medically to help me. So I just began, um, you know, finding people in my space that had, had, you know, somebody had breast cancer and try to communicate to them. There was a woman that my husband, the, my husband husband's co-worker's wife was a survivor. And so I, I communicated to her and I just tried to find, um, you know, other women. And then, so I did, I actually, and I, you know, my mom had had a medical error a couple of years prior to me where they, um, you know, she had had surgery on her lung because they thought she had lung cancer and it ended up thankfully, uh, being benign and not cancer, but it sort of colored how I viewed my, my sure. experience. I definitely, um, I, I wanted to be in the driver's seat. I wanted to know, I wanted to be educated. And, and I don't know if you experienced this, but I had no medical knowledge before I was dropped in this. And I said, it's like being dropped in Russia. Like, I don't understand yes. the language. I don't understand the culture. I don't know what you're saying. Could you slow down, say it again and say it in layman's terms. And I was constantly, I had thousands of questions, like a three-year-old that is just like a machine gun with questions and the doctors, I, I think I exhausted most of my, my doctors, <laughs> but it was what I needed to calm myself down. Like I was so scared. You know, my baby was 15 months old. My, you know, my middle son was three years old and my oldest son was, was, it was like a couple of days before he was starting kindergarten. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I need to raise these kids. I need to be here. I need to do everything in my power. And I had a sales background, um, and so what I did was just, I, I said, I'm going to sell these doctors on curing me. And that was sort of the philosophy I took. Um, and, and then I did, I, I really like the things that are really important to me is that, um, is teaching women how to advocate now, because I think that's so critical. And I do think women, um, like I, you know, I talk to women all the time and they're like, oh, I'm not feeling well, but I'll just wait till Monday to call because, you know, I don't want to bother them. Okay. They get paid over the weekend to talk <laughs> to you. It is not bothering them, you know? Right. And like, I don't want to get a second opinion because I don't want to upset him or her. Okay. Listen, like when, when you're, yeah. you know, you, you are in the fight for your life. You need to find the best people and put them on your team and do whatever you can. And regardless, you know, they understand, they understand that you, and if they're upset, they're upset. Right. You know, that's them. Although I do uh, have to say that's, that is kind of a hard one. Um, you know, I, just before I was getting, I would say it probably started, it probably started about a year um, or maybe six months before I was about to get married, I started, they started finding a lot of activity in my ovaries and they found a cyst and, um, or something and they couldn't identify it. They weren't sure if it was cancer. And this was like April and I was getting married in July and I was like, I just, you know, I can't do this. And they were pressuring me. And, um, so I opted to go and have a second opinion, but it was really hard. And I mean, up to this point, it had been, like four years of working with the same team. And I really trusted my team and I valued my team. But at the same time, there was something in my gut that was like, you know, I can't go through a hysterectomy, oophorectomy and, you know, them take out everything, um, you know, just right before my wedding like that. No. Um, so I will tell you, like the, the second opinion thing is one of those things where it is kind of hard, um, but it's important like it is, it is genuinely important. And, you know, kind of like what you had said about your mom, like she had that, you know, medical error where, you know, maybe a second opinion would have 
shown that it was actually benign. Yeah, I, 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 I feel for you because it is hard. It is very hard to get a second opinion, especially if you have a long, you know, relationship with your doctors. But, and I, I tend to tell people, you know, I need fresh eyes. Like I am 36 years old and I, you know, I am not gambling on my life. Like I am, this is it. Like I need to, to, to do the best job that I can to survive the longest that I can. And I often use, um, you know, my grandfather was a painter by trade and he always used measure, measure twice, cut once. And, and that's what I live by. Like, make sure you know exactly what you're doing and you know that it's the right, the best course of action before you do it. And then, you know, and then go full steam, but you, you know, and, and that sometimes, you know, and the challenge with getting second opinions too, is that it puts the, um, the decision in your court. And like I said, like I, I have no medical background. So how could I, you know, make a decision, you know, cause if you do, I got, you know, I, several times I got, you know, I got three opinions from three surgeons and then opinions from three oncologists and they didn't vary that much, but they did vary. And so how could I, you know, now the onus was on me to decide and it's hard and it is, you know, you, but I think I, I just feel like, you know, I just felt like the, from the beginning, I was in the fight for my life and I, and that I was going to put myself first before anybody's feelings or anybody's, um, not in, you know, and the, the doctors are wonderful. I mean, I never really had any problem with anybody. I mean, everybody really kind of understood what I was doing, you know? So it, it, and you know, here in Pittsburgh, I mean, they're, they're awesome and I'm sure they are everywhere, but it's just, and it is, you know, you do become friends with your doctor and your team, yeah. you know, but I, I mean, like a second family. <laughs> exactly. And they've been through all the ups and downs with you. And, but I, I think that's almost exactly it. You need a team. You yeah. can't just hang your hat on one person. You need, you need a team of individuals looking at, you know, everything that's going on. And, um, you know, I happened to be able to sit in on a tumor board meeting, uh, last year and it was probably one of the most fascinating, invigorating things that I've seen because there were, they would bring up a, a patient's case and they wouldn't say the name, but they would show all of the, um, the scans and the blood work and the, you know, all of the details on that particular person, pathology, um, every type of discipline was in that room. And then they all sort of hashed out what should go, what they should do with this person's case going forward. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was, really um invigorating to me to see that many people just trying to figure out this puzzle for this person yeah you know and they don't they don't, arm, they don't always do that for every patient because some patients are you know they they're not as complicated but um that's almost what i wanted though is just i want a, a tumor board team i want this team working on my situation and and you know i i encourage women to just try to advocate for themselves to be able to um you know, to have second opinions, to get other people involved. And, and again, it does fall on you. So you need to be able to take, take that responsibility. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, in terms of, you know, so, so kind of in the intro, I had talked about, you know, it was stage two B, it was triple positive. Um, You know, what was, what was kind of the course of action that they wanted to take with you? Um, well, so I had uh, a lumpectomy, which uh, 
and they, they removed the three tumors, but I still had dirty margins. So they did a mastectomy and on one side and I, you know, I labored over whether to go to do a bilateral and I, you know, and, and, you know, as you know, things happen quickly and you have to make these decisions fast and there were a lot of things going on. And, um, you know, I had three little kids, so I, I did opt just to have one side removed and, um, and then I went into, um, I, you know, I had immediate reconstruction with an implant and then I had, uh, uh, four rounds of adriamycin cytoxin and then four of taxotere and, um, and then five years of, uh, uh, tamoxifen. So, uh, you know, and there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes in that as you well know, but, um, thankfully I didn't have to have radiation. I did have cancer in my lymph nodes, but, uh, they took out, around 26 lymph nodes and I had cancer and yeah, and I had cancer in three of them. And so they, at that point, you know, they, they, the sentinel node was in clinical trial at the time, but since I had, uh, uh, cancer in the lymph nodes, they did a full axillary dissection. And, um, but thankfully, I, I don't have lymphedema, so I'm grateful okay. for yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, you know, because I know that I've done a couple of interviews. Um, one was with lymphedivas, and then the other one was uh, with Lauren's Hope, which is an ID bracelet. And, you know, we had talked about lymphedema, and um, I did not know that even 20 years later, you can develop lymphedema um, at that point in time, even if you've not, you know, had any symptoms of it prior to. So I was like... Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. And, and that is, um, you know, it's odd because I've had friends that have had one lymph node revol- uh, you know, removed and they have severe problems. And yes. I've had people that have, you know, had many lymph nodes re- removed and nothing. So it's, it's such a, it's, it's pre- pretty hard to predict just, just like breast cancer, you know? Right. Yeah. So, um, did you, so with immediate reconstruction, was that an expander or was that like immediate to implant? Oh, it was an expander. Okay. Okay. And then, um, so, and my expander broke during the expansion process. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Which I don't know if anybody else has experienced that, but, um, so I, then I had to get expanded all over again. So that was fun. (laughs) Oh my, like I can't even like. I mean, I've, I've seen the expanders, I've felt the expanders, I am just trying to imagine like, you know, I mean, I'm sure everything can be faulty, but thinking about it breaking just, um, Well, I, I mean, I just woke up one morning and I had no breasts, like it was, it was almost ready to, yeah. And so it had just absorbed in my, you know, the fluid had absorbed in my body and I was flat on the one side and I was like. Oh my god! You know that, that that quick thing that like, am I crazy? Like, what is going on here? And uh, but I have a funny story to tell you. I I um, so we just we had just moved into a new house, and the there was a uh the uh, people that lived next to us had a the, the dad was walking down to the bus stop with me, and so I at this point I had a prosthesis, and I um had. You know, I didn't have like a regular bra that held it with a pocket and everything because I just wasn't sure what I was going to do. So we were walking back from the bus stop and I and I pressed on my chest and it the prosthesis wasn't there. And I thought, oh, my God, like I, you know, I, this dad was walking down. I bet you my breast fell out on the street. Like, I don't know what to do. Like I was I'm freaking sorry. out. 
And I and I was like, oh my god! And so I started walking. I took my my son who was three with me, and I'm walking up and down the street looking for my breast. And so, <laughs> and I'm thinking that I just can't even believe. It. And it, literally, I've been in this neighborhood like uh, like ten days. Okay, oh so I. <laughs> Well, so I, I, I just, I'm like thinking to myself, like, where the heck is it? I put my hand on my other side and it's in my good side. Oh so my I not only do I have my real breast, but I have my, my prosthesis on top of it. And then I'm flat on the other side. So <laughs> you have to enjoy the ride, you know, you have to just oh make fun gosh. of it. And yeah, it was nuts. Yeah. Well, and I always like, that's one of the things that I always was kind of worried about is, um, you know, I, I didn't have a prosthetic necessarily, but I had, um, what I would call like a chicken cutlet. I mean, I suppose that's kind of what it is, but, um, so the radiation had damaged the one side and it was very obvious. Like one side looked, um, you know, kind of normal, if you will, if a half a mini basketball looks normal. Um, and then the other side looked like a baseball because of the radiation. So I was wearing, you know, like that little chicken cutlet and it wasn't any, like, I, I don't remember where I got it, but it wasn't like a medical facility or anything like that. But I was always worried about like, you know, am I going to be sitting in a meeting and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, sitting on my collarbone or, you know, like where, yeah. where is it going to go? Where is it today? Yeah. Cause I didn't have a bra that was like a pocketed bra. Like, I know. You know. I was the same thing. It's like, where's Waldo? It's like, yes. you gotta find the, you gotta find my breast at the end of the day. Oh my gosh. So, um, 20 years ago, and I, you know, I'm not sure, was Herceptin discovered 20 years ago? Like, I, I know that yeah. it, okay. Yeah. So yeah, did so you have that, to do Herceptin? I did not, because that was in clinical trial also, okay. and I didn't meet the criteria for the clinical trial. And that was scary, you know, because it, it was uh, very promising already, you know, that they knew that it was, it was doing well. And um, so I, I did not take it. You know, I was not, I wasn't given the option. So, uh, so that then I, I just kind of try to look at it like, okay, well, you know, if I have a recurrence or something, then I at least have that in my back pocket. So, yeah. Yeah. I always kind of think about things like that too. Like, you know, I didn't have chemotherapy, but if anything ever happens, it, you know, it's kind of sitting in my back pocket if I choose to go that route. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's a good way to look at it. I think, I mean, you yeah. have to, you have to try to you know, remain calm, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, cause then I think we can get stuck in the like, Oh, I wish I would have, could have, should have, you know, like, you know, it, yeah. it wasn't available then. And what does that mean for me now? And, you know, I think there are just too many questions. So I just always say, well, you know, I did what I could do in the moment that I had it. And, um, you know, I didn't have to do chemo. So it's just sitting in my back pocket waiting if it ever needs to be used. Well, you were probably in that, um, that sort of scary stage because the oncotype, did you not get chemo because of your oncotype score? I did chemo because I was an intermediate or sorry, I did not do chemo, (laughs) um, because I was in the intermediate range, um, for the oncotype test. And at that point in time, they didn't have, they didn't have enough information to know if chemotherapy was needed for that range of scores. And so my oncologist, you know, I, I just asked him like, you know, well, what would you recommend? And he said, I would tell you, um, you know, whatever, do whatever you think. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know what I think. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> um, 
But there was a clinical trial that was going on at that point in time that it was, you could be randomized to tamoxifen and chemotherapy or just tamoxifen by itself. And so I opted to do the clinical trial thinking, you know, hopefully this will help somebody in the future be able to decide better. Um, So I was randomized to just the tamoxifen. Yeah, well, I think, and and obviously it worked, right? And so the, uh, I think the, that was really challenging because, you know, when I was diagnosed, everybody got chemotherapy. And then I remember working with a lot of women um, just when the Oncotype scores started coming out and they were not getting chemotherapy. And that was really hard. And it's hard for your family. Like, they're like what? You're not getting chemotherapy? And, I know. There's like but, this expectation that everybody that has cancer gets chemotherapy. Everybody. Right. And, but I think it's a leap of faith. So I, I, I give you a lot of credit because it is, um, I think we do overtreat people just because we don't know, but I think these tools and the new tests, you know, the, I mean, Oncotype has been out for a while, but, um, they're really helping a lot to, you know, just try to diminish side effects and then to, uh, alleviate some women from having to go through treatment when they really don't need it. Right. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. And I, that, I think that was part of why I wanted to do the clinical trial is because, you know, I thought, well, you know, if there aren't people out there that are willing to take that chance, then, you know, everybody coming down the line is going to have to go through something that maybe they don't need to. Um, so I just said, sign me up for the cl- clinical trial and we'll see what happens. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. That's, that's- you gave us all good information. You're helping us all. I hope so. I hope so. Um, so did they, I know that you said, um, you know, there's not a, a family history of, um, you know, cancer, but did they have the conversation about genetic testing? I mean, I know things were pretty new at that point in time. Um, were they having any conversation with you about doing it? Yeah, I did meet with a genetic counselor and they determined, um, I didn't have any like relatives that I was aware of that had breast cancer or really any kind of cancer. Um, oddly enough, my aunt was diagnosed after I was, and then my uncle on the same side had prostate cancer. And, um, but I was, they had determined that I only had a 4% chance of having a genetic mutation at the time in 2000. And so, um, I was not genetically tested. And then I did, um, go back after my aunt and uncle were diagnosed and I was genetically tested, I think about 2015 or so. And, um, I do not have the mutation. So, or, you know, either one. So, um, okay. But yeah, but I mean, it was like, at the bigger medical centers. They were, they were doing genetic testing in 2000. Okay. Yeah. I know that it was, you know, kind of the mid late nineties where they really started or, you know, had found the genetic mutations or, um, yeah. So I know some people were getting it done, some weren't, um, but I wasn't sure. And I know like the frustrating thing for me too, is, you know, there are some people who have a pretty solid family history of cancer who can't get tested. Um, at least back when I was, um, you know, in support groups, they were talking about that. Like I had one friend who, she was like, I don't understand. Like I have this whole line of family members who have cancer and I cannot get tested. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think, well, I know, um, yeah, Myriad had a patent on that test. Yes. So, and they, they were the only ones that could do it. And it was uh, upwards of $2,000, I believe. So that's a bar- that was a barrier and right. insurance right. wasn't always, you know, going to pay for it. And, uh, you know, and obviously $2,000 is a lot of money for any family, but um, once it came off of patent, which 
I want to say it was about five or seven years ago. I'm not 100% sure, but then more companies are now involved and it is an easier test to get. And, and I really, um, you know, have, I suggest that, you know, even men get it and try to find out, you know, particularly if they have a family history, but, um, you know, I mean, like you were saying earlier that, um, someone said that, you know, it couldn't come, you know, from your paternal side, which is not true. And most people don't really understand it, you know? So it's, yeah, well, and that's, that's the thing is, you know, the reality is, is that, um, so my biological father, um, who I do not have a relationship with, um, he has it. I mean, he has to have it because he gave it to me. Whether he's been tested, I don't know. Um, you know, and I, and I, so I do think there is a big misunderstanding in terms of um, men and them needing to get the genetic testing as well. But again, if our doctors don't know, if we're le- leaning into our doctors for information and our doctors don't know that you can get a genetic mutation from either side of the family, then it, yeah. it's kind of understandable that, you know, anyone who's not a doctor may also think the same thing. Right. Yeah, it, it, it is. It, it's a, you know, we need, just need to educate. I mean, there are so many, so many things that we do know about breast cancer, but there's still so many things, so many myths out there. Right. that um, still persist. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, 20 years out, um, what does your follow-up look like? Um, personally, I I transitioned to the, a survivorship center at uh, UPMC, and, okay. and that I typically see an oncologist. Uh, I mean, I, I don't have to go if I don't want to anymore, but I my oncologist is so... Uh, detail-oriented and comprehensive that it's she's like an amazing uh, PCP on steroids <laughs> because as you as you probably have found I mean when you go to your PCP with certain issues whether it be tamoxifen related or you know it's some of these things some of the fallout so to speak of cancer um, sometimes PCPs don't really understand and so if you are going to like if you're lucky enough to have a survivorship center where you are try to take advantage of it because they do understand the challenges that you face after chemotherapy. Like, you know, a bone, you know, if you're lucky enough not to have a recurrence, um, you know, bone issues and, uh, you know, uh, you know, even neuropathy, uh, you know, looking for other cancers, you know, and other genetic risks and things like that, even though you might not have, you know, the genetic, uh, uh, mutations for breast cancer, but, uh, you know, it's so I, that's what I do. I usually see the oncologist twice a year. Um, and then, you know, we do, we, we usually just do blood, blood tests. I don't necessarily do any kind of scans, um, you know, re- on the regular. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and everybody's follow-up is different. Um, you know, I know that for anyone who has an identified BRCA mutation, we will never go a year unless we choose to um, without being seen or, you know, by multiple people. <laughs> um, right. And I, I think you're, I mean, I think we're all wise to continue yes. to follow up. As, as we all know, you know, we, we are never really safe. There is no, you know, there, there's no finish line when it comes to cancer. You just have to, you know, be on guard, all, you know, all the time, just watching for any kind of symptoms or anything. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I've, I've had a couple of women on who were, 
And again, I don't, I don't know obviously what information was shared with them, but they didn't necessarily realize that there was a chance for recurrence. And then, um, I want to say both of them ended up with a broken back, um, that ended up being, um, breast cancer that had metastasized. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a very valid point that, you know, it's, we really shouldn't let our guard down, whether we have a BRCA mutation or not, um, or any other mutation, you know, once we've had that breast cancer diagnosis, I think it's really important that we just be mindful and continue to monitor our health and our wellness. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point. I think uh, most people don't, I mean, the general public sort of thinks that, you know, once you are treated, then you're fine. Um, and that's definitely not true. And, and 30% of all women in early stage cancer metastasize to, you know, stage four cancer. And, and you know, there's no exit route from, you know, metastatic cancer. And so it and you, we don't necessarily know. There's no real rhyme or reason. I mean, there are some cancers that are, you know, some breast cancers that are, um, you know, more likely to metastasize, but it is challenging. I mean, we don't really know enough about it to know who will metastasize and who won't. And, um, and it's, it's sneaky, you know, and it is, it is shocking to me, even just working with the, a lot of the women in Pittsburgh, that some doctors will tell a woman after five years that she's cured. And it, I, I shudder, you know, and yeah. I don't want to break anybody's spirit or, you know, the last thing I want to do is remove hope because that is so critical, but, um, it, it we need to be truthful, you know, and, and that is, that's a, that's another huge myth because I think, um, I, and I don't know how we change that, but I do think, uh, people really do need to understand that it is, um, it is a challenge that we must monitor closely for the rest of our lives. And, you know, just to try to make sure that, you know, we are doing whatever we can to prevent metastasis, which I don't, I don't even know how you would do that, you know? Right. Yeah. And I, I remember, um, and this is, this is one of the um, things I talk about in my book is I remember people telling me like, oh, you know, just wait a year, it'll be done and over with, or wait till you get to your five years and then your cancer free. And, and I remember seeing an article, um, I'm one of those people kind of like you, you know, where like, you've got a thousand questions, um, like you just need information. And that was me. And um, it was a girl who had a very similar story. She and her, her cancer was the exact same as mine. Um, and hers had metastasized to stage four. And so I remember, you know, writing about that in my book that, you know, here's this girl who has the exact same cancer that I have, and now she's a stage four. So when people tell me that it's okay to, you know, not worry about things after a year or after five years, I know that's not true. Yeah, and it is, I mean, you you want a balance between, you know, you, you want to live your life. You want to go after and do the things that you want to do, but you want to just be mindful that, and not, you know, you don't want this black cloud to follow you, but you also want to be realistic, you know? Yeah. And so I always say, you know, um, you know, expect the best, but prepare for the worst, you know, and just try to live the best life you possibly can. And, and, you know, but also, you know, don't miss an appointment, 
and don't, you know, if there's something weird or if you're having pain, uh, like we have a woman in our group who was uh, kept tripping and, you know, she was, she knew enough to go to the doctor. And unfortunately she had, uh, you know, a, a brain tumor, a, a, you know, metastatic brain tumor. And so, but I think she, you know, you can find things if you just try to listen to your body, um, which I know is hard because I can remember shortly after getting out of treatment. I mean, every, you know, every eyelash that falls out, you're like, Oh my God, what is that? You know, (laughs) you know, and every single, uh, you know, I begged my oncologist for scans. Like I just need a PET scan. He's like, you just had one. I'm like, I just need another one. I just need another one. You have no idea. So, I mean, it's, it's hard and you have to balance that. And that the other side of it is emotional support. I mean, that's what we do at the cancer caring center and the young women's breast cancer awareness foundation. We really try to provide support through support groups, through one-on-one counseling and, that is such a missing component at these health centers. And I, you know, I, I campaign for that because it is so important because, you know, my anxiety that drove me to continually ask for scans was because I was a nervous wreck. So if I had some way to temper that, if I had some way to, um, you know, calm myself and to be able to determine which, which pain was really a pain and which pain was like hysteria, then, you know, I, I could have probably managed that situation better or, you know, that experience better. So if you have the opportunity to get emotional support, please, I mean, reach out, try to find it wherever you can, because it, it makes a huge difference. And that is a critical part of your team. Like I said, you know, building a team is, is so important. And the, the emotional part is, is a huge part of that. Yeah. And I agree with that. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I got very lucky. I went to Gilda's Club uh, pretty early on. My best friend, um, Ken, actually forced me to go. <laughs> um, I didn't want to go, but he good, made me go. And <laughs> Yeah. Um, and he went with me when I did my kind of intake or intro um, to it. But I will, like, I went to Gilda's Club for a very, very long time after that. Um, and you know, that, that emotional support, wherever it may be, you know, um, wherever you may find it, it's fine, but just make sure that you have that support. I think that's so, so critical in our healing. Um, I can't imagine, you know, I, I didn't have anybody that was necessarily around me that was going through this. Like I, I didn't have much of a connection to the paternal side of my family. So I didn't have anybody to talk to really. Um, so I had to find people and I can't imagine, what that would have been like if I had not found anybody to talk to. Yeah. And it, it's so critical. And it, I think, you know, you probably were felt isolated because of your age as well, you know, yes. and that, and that is a, like I was getting, you know, people were on the playground were giving me numbers for their grandmother to call. And I was like, you know, I, I, this kid's yeah. in a stroller, you know, like I, <laughs> and so I, I needed other women my age. And luckily I was able to find some very strong women my age that unfortunately had cancer, but we created a, just a, like a, a tight, tight bond and we're able to usher each, each other through the ups and downs. And, and, you know, we lost people too. I mean, that's the other side that is challenging, but it's the reality of the disease. So it, but it, it, it never overshadows the, the bond that you have or the, the strength and the, you know, just the, the, this, the real benefit of that social um, support, you know, it, it's invaluable. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I know that you made mention, um, again, that the the Cancer Caring Center and also the Young Women's Breast Cancer Awareness Foundation provide social emotional support. Where can people go for information? Um, well, I do Zoom groups and I am not a therapist and I'm not, I'm just, a you know, I'm a patient, and like a peer support person. So I do Zoom groups every Thursday night on uh which you can you can either find them on my Facebook page or you can email me at jen at ywbcaf.org. Uh, the Cancer Caring Center, I like to call us the powerhouse of emotional support because we have 32 different support groups on Zoom uh, and for, for we, we serve all different t- cancers and caregivers. Um, but then we also have uh, our secret weapon, which I like to call her, is Wendy Myers, who is our, um, she is our, licensed clinical social worker who does one-on-one counseling uh for free with patients and everything is on zoom yeah she's fantastic and our our other facilitators are unbelievable and they are all um either mental health professionals or nurse navigators they're all professionals so it's really helpful because they know the system they understand what's going on they're working in it every day uh they have resources like i you know i just found out the other day that um there's a, such a thing called a financial social worker. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, and just, you know, cause uh, cancer is expensive and, um, and just so many things like, you know, we're going to do, um, in a few weeks, Wendy is having a speaker on about, uh, uh, sleep, you know, how, how to get better sleep after, a can- you know, during or after a cancer diagnosis and beyond. Um, we've had multiple speakers on all summer long, uh, addressing, uh, in- integrative medicine, um, uh, what else have we had? Uh, I, I had a child specialist who actually is from our clubhouse because our clubhouse is transitioned from Gilda's place to our clubhouse. So we had a um, right. a child uh, life social worker that, you know, how do you tell your kids you have cancer? She has like a ton of, and all, we, we've uh, recorded all of these. So if you have, um, if you're interested, you can go to the Cancer Caring website, which is cancercaring.org. Um the, our, our Zoom groups, you know, we used to just serve people in Pittsburgh, but now we are getting people from all over the country just because it's on Zoom, yeah. um, it, which we, which is fine. We want to give support to everybody. Um, Wendy probably would only do, uh, uh, you know, individual counseling for those in Pittsburgh. So just so you know that, but, um, but, you know, there are, I know that Gilda's Club, um, has transitioned to, I think it's cancer support community and they're, they're all over the country and they, you know, many of them offer some very similar, uh, resources. Um, and so, or, you know, just talk to your cancer center where you're being treated, but it is invaluable to be able to have that, um, support. It's, it just makes a huge difference. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, I want to thank you so much for, um, first of all, being on the podcast, sharing your story, um, talking about, you know, both the, the Cancer Caring Center and also um, the Young Women's uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Foundation. I appreciate you being here with us today. Oh, well, thank you, Melissa. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. 
Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at BehindThePinkRibbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.